Hey everybody, my name is Eric Arnaud, and welcome to the second part of the Nerdalogs Present Your Stories December podcast. Like last time, the show you're about to hear was recorded live at the Pub Theater, 3220 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Everything on this podcast has been created and performed by audience members who volunteered to share their stories. This time out, you'll hear from Chicago comedian and production master Jeremy Connie, who recalls doing whatever it took to be cool in junior high. Blogger and film critic Aaron Pinkston gives us a taste into his neuroses for cataloging trivia, and the mysterious Angela shares a story of falling in love over eloquently written emails. Plus, I relate a recent experience involving broken hearts and comic books. As usual, the show also features live music from myself and Dwight Hassler of the band Take Cover. If you'd like to participate in the next Your Story show, please drop by the Pub Theater this Sunday night, December 18th at 8pm for our next recording. It's totally free, so even if you don't want to share, you can come be part of our audience. Now, on with the show. <laughs> Too cold. I'm just going to switch the cord after this intro. You, you 
gets no introduction because he is me. <laughs> so this is really weird for me because I'm, as you see, I'm a cover musician. My job is to lie in front of crowds. I very seldom tell the truth in front of large groups of people, so please bear with me uh, as I tell you this story about broken hearts and comedians. Uh, so it starts pretty typically. This summer, I met a girl. Uh, I was drawn to her instantly, and even though she might not admit it, I think she could say the same about me. At the very least, we had an instant and serious rapport. Within four days of meeting, we started texting about pretty much everything, which I'm pretty sure that's the barometer for how quality your relationship is in 2011. Over the course of July and August, we sent each other 3,600 texts. Now, to me, that seems like a lot. Like, I've, I've, I've had my phone six months, and the next person on that list hasn't even cracked 500. Sorry, Matt, I love you, but, you know. But that's very validating, you know, to have someone to share all this, like, minuscule, stupid stuff with. Like, I'm sure everyone feels that way, but... I think for nerds, that's just increased because, like, our whole lives we're told, you know, the things we do and the things we like are stupid and they don't matter. And it's, like, intoxicating to find someone that thinks that they do. You guys know what I mean? Yeah. So, I need to point... <laughs> someone said, I don't know. Thank you. Uh, I need to point out, before I go further, that this girl and I didn't actually date. We had what I would call emotional intimacy, but that was really it. And kind of the reason for that was that at the end of the summer, she was going to London for a year to get a master's degree. So you can see where maybe some problems are going to come in with this. So, even though we didn't actually date, I felt, it felt like a relationship to me. But weirdly, like, of course, this girl would always try to marginalize what was going on between us. She would always say, you know, as of to convince me she's nothing special. Well, you have a lot of friends. You know, I, I'm, I don't really matter that much. And that's true, you know, I'm blessed, I do have a lot of friends, but none of them would ever text me to say, I wish you were here shopping with me, you're so good at picking out gifts, or I really want someone to sing me to sleep tonight. That, that really happened. So, you can imagine, when, when I got that last one, a little confusing given the state of our relationship, and I called her on the mixed messages, and she kind of feebly replied that she was just joking, but, you know, I didn't think it was a joke when I called her up and sang Peter Gabriel to her, so... <laughs> anyway... <laughs> you can imagine that with her going to London and, and me having these feelings, things got strained pretty quickly, but I figured she'd at least let me say goodbye before she left, and I bought a couple pretty kick-ass going-away gifts for her. I'm, like, really good at gift-giving. I hate to brag. It's true. I'm super good at it. So... I, I planned to give them to her over, like, lunch or dinner a week or two before she left, you know. Unfortunately, that, that didn't really happen. Like, a, literally a day after I spent 50 bucks on these gifts, I get an email from her, and it says, basically, seeing you would be too intense. Sorry. And that was almost the last time we talked. Like, we maybe exchanged 100 words since then, after 3,600 texts. 
Now, here's where comic books come in. <laughs> the day that I got that message was the day before DC released Justice League number one. Now, if you follow the comics medium at all, you probably know that at the end of summer, DC, which is one of the top publishers, relaunched their entire line of superhero books. So everything would start over again at number one, and readers would have 52 all-new first issues to dig into come September. It was probably the biggest news to hit mainstream comics in at least a decade. As a comics fan, I was excited, but I'm also a comics blogger, and to that side of me, this was uh, even more than having something to look forward to. This was a chance for me to create work of actual journalistic relevance, however slight it may be. So I got it in my head that the site I write for would produce something of real significance when it came to covering what is called the New 52. And I knew it wasn't in my power to read and write reviews for all the books, so I recruited a whole team of columnists to help me do this. Two of them are here today. Dwight and Jeremy, thank you for your help with that. Um, Love you, <laughs> Aw. <laughs> so, I spent a large part of the month of September reading comics, editing reviews, and basically just driving up traffic to the site. We produced about ten times as much content as we normally do, and we saw the rewards of that, which is great. It's really rewarding for me personally, and it ended up helping me professionally as well. Uh, in October, I got promoted to an editorial position at my day job, and I had this whole month of experience doing editing at this kind of hobby of mine that really helped with that. But despite all the positives, I kind of had this personal dilemma in the back of my head. Because, I mean, obviously I was very, very upset about this girl. And throwing myself into DC's fictional universe made me feel a lot better. <laughs> but, but should it have? Like, was this really a way for me to further my journalistic aspirations, or was I just using that as flimsy justification to retreat from the real world into a frankly more appealing fictional one, like I'd done so many times as a child? Was I acting like a driven adult or basically an immature kid? The answer is probably somewhere in between. But towards the beginning of that whole period, I came upon a quote that really helped me, and it lent some perspective to that question, and I'd like to share it with you guys. The quote goes, when we're feeling lost, it's the work we do, that little bit of good in the world, that gives us back the sense of self, our sense of self, makes us who we are. You guys know who said that? It was Superman. And DC Comics Swamp Thing number one. And that works for me. Thank you very much. Our next nerd uh, is stupid into Minecraft right now. Everybody, Jeremy Connery. Uh, up until this moment, I forgot that that's what I had said he would introduce me. <laughs> <laughs> we were playing Minecraft like an hour ago. <laughs> that's why it came to mind. Uh, so this monologue is entitled, The Stupid Things You Do in Junior High to Get People to Like You. <laughs> and if you will oblige me, I will go on a little bit of a walkabout to see how I got to... What ended up to be a series of hilarious disasters. Uh, grade school was okay. Uh, I wasn't, you know, the most physically proud, have the most physical prowess as most people, you know. I was never king of the hill uh, when it was called out. I never, um, I never played tetherball. If anybody else had tetherballed, I regarded that as the farthest thing away from my person. I knew I, my head would explode as the tetherball hit it. As it surely would. Uh, but I was um, 
And I was not socially very good either. Uh, what I was good at was, you know, figuring stuff out, doing homework, doing schoolwork, and just generally trying to be as good at that as I could. I was, uh, as I later came to figure out, a kid that was just too smart for his own darn good. And that's evidenced by the fact that... Uh, you remember vocab tests? Where, where he, I, looking back, they were like the simplest things ever. You get 12 words, and all you gotta do is learn all the words and learn all the meanings and memorize it, and then come in and regurgitate that information. I said, fuck that. I, I figured out a way to cheat on vocab tests. <laughs> and I don't know why I felt like I needed to, but I, I literally was home one night and I was like, writing down the words to memorize them, and I figured, well, why don't I just use this piece of paper with the words and the meanings on it and use this on the test? Obviously, that's cheating. <laughs> and to, I don't remember exactly how I did it, but I, would, I took this eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and found a way to put it underneath my butt <laughs> During the test, while there are 25 other students and a teacher on, around me, and so I spied through my crotch to the answers. <laughs> I figured this out in fourth grade that I could easily cheat on a vocab test. Uh, and what put the cherry on the top and solidified uh, my way of thinking for a while is later on at the end of fourth grade, I was given one of the highest honors to someone in my level. I was given the citizenship award. <laughs> I got to go in front of the principal, who was a large man from my vantage point, with a very good voice and a mustache. And as he told me that I was doing all the right things, and that I was a very smart kid, and that I should keep doing the things that I do. <laughs> So after taking a couple years off, 6th grade, 5th grade, as we moved to Indianapolis, my parents got divorced, and I moved back to the town, I got right back to doing wrong things because I could. It was called junior high. And I quickly learned in junior high that everything that I felt was safe in grade school and everything that I learned was wrong about me in grade school is still fine. Everything that was safe is gone. I'm not cool at all. I'm not good at much stuff at all, except being smart, and I was down at the bottom of all the smart kids. I was made fun of a lot. I have weird thumbs. <laughs> I, found about, I found out about this in junior high. You guys will all get a chance to look. I have weird thumbs. <laughs> They're not normal. Uh, if you compare them to your thumbs, you will realize that they are different. <laughs> Junior high was the time that that came out and became part of my personality because people were like, you got weird thumbs, I'm going to give them nicknames in order to make fun of you. And this is all the smart people. These are all the honors kids. Like, one of the honors kids was like, I'm going to name this thumb, this specific thumb, the Jabberwock. It was so goddamn weird, and I should feel ashamed about it. <laughs> through, through this juxtaposition of being beaten down and knowing that I can game the system, 
I felt like I, I really needed to get people to like me, and I can just figure this out. This led me to steal cigarettes. <laughs> I stole cigarettes in junior high. I found out a way to go to a hardware store that sold cigarettes for some reason. <laughs> and take packs of Camel Unfiltered Reds. Because I knew those were the most dangerous cigarettes. (laughs) And that those were the cigarettes that if I got them, kids would like me most if I gave them to the other people. And I sold cigarettes to my fellow peers in June. (laughs) Yes. In order to get people to like me. (laughs) Easy system. And it worked for a while. decided to stop selling or stealing and then selling cigarettes after I got caught stealing a pack of certs and getting off scot-free. By saying I was so sorry. (laughs) 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 I didn't want to get in trouble. Uh, So the coup de gra of me doing stupid shit to get people to like me was in sixth, uh, sixth grade uh, we were in social studies, and we had a, a sort of eccentric, very lively social studies teacher called Mr. Heinrich. He was all about like getting, you know, being friendly to students, just having a fun time, and encouraging learning through having fun, and that was great. And he happened to have a mug that was filled with bunnies having sex on it in different positions all around the mug. True story. And we found this to be something special, <laughs> as sixth graders would. It was called Le Lapin. It was, it was uh, literally entitled Le Lapin, which I think is the rabbit in yeah. French. Mm-hmm. What's that? It's rabbit. Rabbit in French, thank you. Uh, and he, he had this mug on his desk, so that's the way, how we found out about it. And literally, it was covered in rabbits all having sex in different positions. No one position... <laughs> so naturally we found this very fascinating uh, Eventually over the course of our 6th grade career We would start chants uh, oh, we, would, I mean, we, would, we would go nuts when we saw this thing We made a big deal about it Until he, would, he put it away in the desk And we would start chants to get it to come out <laughs> we would, Literally at times during 6th grade We would say, let lapping would happen As we beat on our desks Let lapping will happen And so he, you know, pushed it away and tried to uh, subjugate our desire for this mug by hiding it. But we're, we're, we, there were a series of kids that were too smart for our own good, including the same one that made fun of me for my thumb, hatched a plan to steal Lilapin. I don't remember exact details of this plan. It was explained to me in some in the algebra class. We would do this. We would, he would get the mug. I would give him my locker combination. He would put it in my locker. Then I would go to my locker on bathroom break or in chorus. Go from my locker to home because I lived at the back side of my junior high, which turned out to be a plus when we were figuring out this plan. <laughs> and I hid Lilapin in my hamper. I knew no one would look in dirty clothes. <laughs> no one would look in dirty clothes. Next day, 
in algebra as we were feeling on top of the world. We stole this mug for no goddamn good reason. <laughs> it started circulating that he knew it was Mr. Heinrich knew that the mug was stolen and that he was going to uh, if the people that did not the people that stole the mug did not come forward they would be suspended or expelled I can't remember and either way I was just I was I was this was terrible I I was freaking out I couldn't believe it for one I was like it's just a mug it's just a mug but he was obviously embarrassed as a teacher to have this mug and have it being stolen, he was affronted in his pride. So I just, we reversed the plan. I went to my hamper, I went back to my locker, I put it in my locker. I, during course, bathroom break. Uh, and then my friend uh, got it from my locker and then gave it back to Mr. Heinrich. We, I went through an extravagant, uh, what could be called a conspiracy. Plan, plot, to steal a mug with rabbits doing the naughty on it. in junior high all because I wanted some kids that made fun of me for being me and who I am to like me and looking back on it I laugh a lot because that desire that I want to agree to a plan like that is just based on me not liking myself enough to be confident and now I would never do a plan like that for those reasons. <laughs> I would do it because it would be hilarious. <laughs> Thank you. Jeremy Carly, everybody. Uh, I have to apologize to our next storyteller because the only introduction I was given for her is that she is Caitlin's friend. So, Angela, yeah! please. <laughs> I mean, a last name would have been okay. No! Caitlin's friend! Angela's her own person, too. I'm Oh, thanks. Thanks for that awesome introduction. I'm so sorry. I don't know if I can live up to that. Uh, being Caitlin's friend is very difficult. <laughs> I love you. So I call this uh, Letters to the Editor. <laughs> I remember the exact moment that I felt for him. I'm going to read it to you. If I really wanted to give up something I enjoy often, it would be sarcasm. (laughs) He wrote in his first email to me. But then what would I have to say? Instead, I'm going to imitate the bad Catholics and give up something I won't miss. Synecdoche. (laughs) I almost never use it and no one recognizes it anyway. (laughs) So I don't have to worry about it. Uh, suffering any moral lapse if I let one slip. (laughs) Synecdoche? Synecdoche. This was the first of 297 emails. Look at you. (laughs) Uh, Twelve postcards, uh, three snail mail letters between Uh Bruce and me over an eight-month period. Email isn't actually the right word for our correspondence. I would call it letters or electronic letters because I make this point because an email is something that you like dash off while you're waiting for the bus, but these were composed and clever and thoughtful, funny and intimate epistles. <laughs> that was another one of his words. Epistle, it means a writer of letters. It was his job handle. 
Don't write it. I consider myself a word nerd. Um, I broke curfew as a kid staying up to read Anne of Green Gables and Dostoevsky, and I'm a snob about language. I won't go out with anybody who doesn't read for fun. I sincerely think... I sincerely think less of you if you if you use the phrase centers around. <laughs> I have no fewer than five dictionaries, two on my desk at work, three at home for my emergency word needs, which came in pretty handy when I was reading his emails, starting with synecdoche. It means, as I learned by looking it up, uh, it's a subset of a metaphor it, and you use it uh, as a part of a thing to describe another thing. It's better explained with an example. You would say, steal my ride, which actually means steal my car, because a ride is a part of a car. It's a thing you do with a car. Right. So I was never going to catch him using synecdoche. Um, we met uh, in, in the spring in New Orleans when I was visiting friends, and he was clerking for the Supreme Court Justice. He's a lawyer. We'd actually met five years ago at a journalism conference, and we'd both really hit it off, but we were both in relationships, and then we forgot about each other, and then Facebooks, right? (laughs) A couple of messages over Facebook, and suddenly I was meeting him for drinks in New Orleans, and it was amazing. It was this amazing weekend, and that email about synecdoche, synecdoche, whatever, uh, came (laughs) right right after that weekend, and for five months we wrote every day, sometimes twice a day, like nine and ten and twelve paragraph emails. Because of him, I learned words and phrases like equanimity, latent ambiguity, goo gaws, gym cracks, mediated reality, sartorial, apocryphal, and on and on and on. It was pretty hot. <laughs> we also sent each other mixed CDs and books we loved, and we wrote reviews about these. Like, <laughs> Like, song number five. Yeah. Um, we played online Scrabble, and he is the best player. I think his win-loss ratio is like 390 to 30. He's the smartest man I've ever met, and we saw each other five times over that eight-month period. And we were, when we were together, it was fun, and it was nice. Two words he would never use in a sentence. <laughs> Too simple. Um, but the real connection was in those emails. We revealed ourselves on, on paper, electronic format. We were the thinkers and the, and the writers and the dreamers. We never seemed to be in person writing prose about summer the way writers write about summer. <laughs> I felt like I was with somebody who understood me and, and saw like these thoughts and these dark ideas and joys, and then he loved them. And I was seeing other people. I would go on dates, but really I would just run from the dates just so I could go home and check and see if I had another email. But what was this, anyway? What was this relationship? How would I manage to go my entire life without so much as a summer camp pen pal? And here I was in what I referred to some of my friends as a pen pal with benefits. (laughs) Well, like any stereotypical girl, it wasn't enough. I wanted more. If we could be this good on paper, surely we could be this good in reality, right? The months went by, and I continued to express my affection in email. 
Um, but his tone changed. Uh, postcards and letters, it was less lyrical, more hurried, um, fewer revelations about himself, and I found myself stalking my inbox, waiting a day or two between his emails, and I got annoyed when some of my friends would email me, email, and it wasn't him. I was studying his emails, which got shorter and fewer. I'd look at his salutation and wonder, when he says, dear, does that mean dear? Or does that mean dear? And why did he sign off saying cheers instead of XO? Did he not XO me anymore? Until the email that I got that read like this. So I've been on a few dates with someone, and it looks like we're going to continue seeing each other. I'll just say that she can't really compete with you. But it's nice to be less lonely. (laughs) That was it. I sent a short email back telling him I was disappointed. I thought we could be more. And um, perhaps we could have. But as time has passed, I, I start to see our relationship differently. I, I had this postcard, um, I had all these postcards that I was sent, sending him, and I had this one that I never sent, and, and it had this quote on it from Janet Malcolm, and um, this is what it said, a correspondence is a kind of love affair. It is with our own epistolary persona that we fall in love, rather than that of our pen pal. So maybe it wasn't Bruce that I fell for, maybe it was really me. Maybe it was this idealized version of myself, this gal who wrote prose about the sway of a summer tree and scored wellish on Scrabble. (laughs) Maybe it wasn't love at all. Maybe. Maybe not. That would have just been super depressing for everybody. <laughs> Does anyone want to tell a story about when love is cool? We have one more storyteller tonight. Uh, this next gentleman writes for the same website I do. He also was my roommate for some time, and he also has a beard. So, <laughs> and you know him as the cut to guy from uh, Prison Break, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I had my first experience going to a Nerdalog show uh, two weeks ago, uh, which was which was pretty amazing. It was a great show. Uh, I really enjoyed myself. And after um, after my girlfriend and I left, my my wonderful, amazing, beautiful girlfriend asked me if I thought I was a nerd, if I considered myself a nerd. Um, I shut her down pretty rudely. I guess because I guess because. I, I thought it was pretty obvious. <laughs> Apparently, you all agree. Uh, but if anything, it compelled me to come tonight and uh, share with you all my story of, of my nerdiness. Uh, my nerdiness is actually something a lot of you may consider yourselves to be nerdy about. And I, I guess, I, I suppose my nerdiness 
could be applauded or appreciated. It could be held up as an achievement. Uh, but the extent my, of my nerdiness uh, borders compulsion. My nerdiness, or should I say my disease, is watching movies. Since January 1st, 2010, I have seen 1,076 movies. In 2010, I saw 550 movies. And this year, as of current, I have seen 526. So where did this all start? Uh, Well, not surprisingly, with unemployment. While I was living with my mom two hours uh, away from the wonderful city, city of Chicago, uh, I had a lot, a lot of free time. Uh, I figured when I got a job and moved back to the city with all these fun things to do, I wouldn't see so many films. But that turned out actually to be untrue, as my compulsions uh, totally had their hooks in me already, and my movie watching, movie watching rates actually increased when I found employment. Of course, I've used my movie watching to help spark my creativity. I've hosted a podcast uh, reviewing films. I, I've written for blogs and websites. I currently write for, for a website called Nerdy Nothings. Uh, you should go there and see my running, uh, my running series of uh, James Bond films. They're watching, really good. I edit them. Watching, <laughs> watching every, every James Bond film. Uh, you know, but, but sometimes these, these projects that I've, that I've done... They, you know, they would come and go as I would lose interest, but my movie watching, movie watching habits have never waned. Having studied film in college, I, I used to always joke and, and say that I was doing an independent study. Uh, but at some point, that excuse sort of loses its sense of humor and just is kind of sad. <laughs> Being a person who could never just watch or read what I want to watch or read, I, I've always derived my viewing habits from various lists of best ofs. And I actually started, when I started these movie-watching habits, I would watch entire filmographies of directors. And now, actually, I've come to watch as many films from 2011 as I could. Uh, so yes, I've seen the Smurfs. <laughs> I saw Red Riding Hood and a number of direct-to-DVD films. Although I haven't seen it yet, Zookeeper is near the top of my Netflix. <laughs> really, though, I don't consider my movie-watching movie watching prowess to be what makes me a nerd. I mean, obviously it does, but uh, it's not exactly why I'm making my confessions tonight. It is because I have compiled an extensive database chronicling my movie-watching habits. <laughs> Somebody's with me. Yeah. It started with a simple list of all of the movies I've watched, you know, as I watched them. But as I continued watching dozens and dozens and to hundreds of movies, I felt compelled to start lists that were sorted by, sorted by release date and by director. After 2010 ended, I began a new database with only films I saw in 2011. And then a third database with all the films I've seen since I've started this whole thing since the beginning of 2010. Each of these databases also contain the appropriate lists sorted by, by year and by director. Then I had a, the bright idea of starting a similar database with actors. <laughs> actor database currently contains over 6,000 different unique actors. <laughs> Where I, whenever I've seen a, a, an actor in more than three films, I take them from that just master list of names 
into a separate sheet in the database where I list the films that they're in. This particular spreadsheet is so large that I'm actually dreading the day that Google Docs tells me I can no longer add any cells. Uh, really, I just won't know, I won't know what to do. Uh, but by having this list, I can provide you with much irrelevant statistical data. Since the beginning of 2010, January 1st, 2010, I have seen uh, Inception four times. I've seen Orgasmo three times. <laughs> Since uh, be the beginning of 2010, I've seen 11 films directed by Woody Allen. I've seen 33 films directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And I've seen four films directed by Michael Bay. <laughs> The first film I saw this year in 2011 was the, the wonderful uh, John Cameron Mitchell film, Rabbit Hole. The first film uh, I saw in 2010 was the equally amazing uh, John Chu Step Up to the Streets. <laughs> I've seen 12 films featuring Richard Alexander, who is a silent uh, film actor, a bit player for the likes of Cecil B. DeMille. I couldn't tell you what he looks like, but I've seen 12 films. Uh, I've seen 14 films that feature Timothy Spall, who happens to be in every British movie ever made. I've seen five, five movies released in 2011, five 2011 films that feature Brian Cranston. I've seen zero films starring Orlando Bloom. I've seen 171 movies that were released in 2011. And while I don't keep a running tally, uh, with a bit of, bit of research that I did, I can tell you I've seen a, a total of 199 movies in theaters this year. If you do a little bit of math, that's about four movies a week in theaters. I've seen a movie released in every year since 1920 on to today, except I haven't seen any movies released in 1994. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was not actually a bad year with films like The Shawshank Redemption, Pulp Fiction, uh, what else? Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump won the Oscar that year. 93. So since 2010. Yeah, since I started this semester. I've seen those films, but not since 2010. Thank God. Yes. Now, having a database like this isn't just fun and games. As I've set up a number of rules that I've had to spend way too much time arguing with myself about. For example, it should be pretty easy to tell uh, the year of a film's release, but not always. I had to decide whether to go by the film's premiere or by the theatrical release. And since I've been watching many films, uh, as many new films as possible, many of the 2011 films that I've seen have been very small films that none of you, I, I guarantee none of you have ever heard of. Uh, many of them that played on the festival circuits for more than a year, so actually premiered in 2010. Uh, take a recent documentary I saw that was quite enjoyable, uh, The People vs. George Lucas. Uh, it premiered at South by Southwest Film Festival in 2010, but is now actually just coming out on DVD. Uh, some, see some heads, shape, uh, heads nodding. You've seen it. That's great. It's a good, good film. Uh, a lot of websites would uh, use the release date to, they tend to go with the premiere, like IMDb would say that this is a 2010 movie. But 
I've actually uh, decided to stick by the theatrical release, so I consider this a 2011 film. Now, many challenges come with some of the small films that don't have a lot of information on them. Uh, does a run at the IFC Center or the Gene Siskel Film Center here in Chicago count as a theatrical release? What about uh, Oscar qualifying runs in LA or New York that aren't usually publicized on websites like IMDb? Sometimes IMDb will tell me a film came out in a random country and a year before it came out in the U.S., and how could I really believe this? And what about foreign films? What about them? (laughs) Do I use the worldwide releases or the U.S. theatrical releases? This can come particularly tricky when I'm making a personal list of the best movies of each year. And what about their names? Should I use the foreign names or the English names? Is it La Belle et la Bête Bête or Beauty and the Beast for the the Jean Cocteau film? Is it Amélie or Les Fablos Destines de Amélie Poulain? When I alphabetize uh, my my total registry, how in the hell do I take the apostrophe into account? (laughs) Does I'm not there follow directly after I'm I'm number four or directly before Immortals? (laughs) This is a particular quandary I've I've actually spent multiple days Mulling over (laughs) Similarly By seeing so many films from this year I just have to feel compelled To rank them for some ridiculous reason Perhaps to justify Why I'm seeing so many Maybe It's fairly easy to make a list Of the ten best films from the year Even if you have to leave a few off that you really love, it's still really not that difficult. But how do you decide between films that are completely mediocre? How do I rank the 100th best film of the year over the 101st best film? How do I differentiate a huge blockbuster made for $200 million like Transformers Dark of the Moon against a small lesbian romantic musical Jamie and Jesse are not together, which was probably made for less than $20,000? If I'm thoroughly entertained by a very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas, but realize it isn't the greatest achievement in filmmaking, does it deserve to be ranked higher than a technical masterpiece that I found troublesome and often not enjoyable, also known as as the tree of life? (laughs) And I've already mentioned foreign releases with their U.S. debuts in 2011. Of course, I've listed them as 2010 films. Uh, where many critics and and list makers would put them on the list for the best of this year. So what should I do about them? Well, of course, I I keep a separate list with the 2010 films that have their U.S. theatrical release in in 2011. I've seen 39 of these, by the way. (laughs) To make matters worse, sometimes I decide uh, I should make an aesthetic change to my spreadsheets. Sometimes I I, want to change a font or line spacing... Uh, sometimes I'm in an 11-point font mood instead of a 10-point font mood. Uh, with the size of these databases and how they're set up, this can literally take hours. Uh, I'm, I'm dreading to see Detective D and the Mystery of the Phantom Flame, not because I don't think it'll be good, because I actually believe it will be, but because the length of the title is too long to fit in my current column width. <laughs> not only am I spending an estimated 50 days of my year watching movies, 50 days a year watching movies. Even just maintaining my database takes about 10 minutes for every film that I see, which isn't that much, but when you add it up, seeing about 500 unique films in a year, this takes out about 80 hours 
of my life. So where does it all end? Uh, I thought um, I thought there would be no way I could top the 550 movies I, I saw in 2010, but right now I'm projected to. So what about next year? I can't see a time personally where I'm not keeping these databases or seeing hundreds of films in a year. Sure, I'm not married, I, I don't have children, and I have a job that I don't have to worry about when I'm not at the office. But that might not always be the case, I realize, but this compulsion has so much power over me. And like any disease, I, I suppose, uh, which you know I could consider this, possibly the most logical end I see is when it finally kills me. <laughs> Aaron, everybody. Aaron, let me let me ask you something. Does Jamie and Justin are not there have Optimus Prime in it? J- Jamie and Jesse are not together. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it doesn't. All right, it's worse than Transformers. <laughs> <laughs>